Good morning. We're in the middle of a series going through Paul's letter to the Philippians. They call it Surprised by Joy. We're surprised by joy. Uh, we're surprised by the joy that we find in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. As we've noticed, he's imprisoned and cut off from those he cares about as he writes the letter. Those he left in charge of the church in Philippi are becoming anxious and afraid. They're under siege. Church meetings are somewhat anxious and distracted. Paul is seeking to write this letter to strengthen and encourage them. And for this reason, he underscores the reasons that they and he have for joy. Paul wrote his letters to be read publicly in the house churches that had formed while he was there. So what would happen? Somebody would take this letter from him. In fact, it was Epaphroditus who took this letter, brought it back to Philippi, and it was meant then to be read in the house churches that existed. There probably would have been a number of them. And Paul, as he writes this letter, is conscious that he is writing in order for those in charge to be able to read this letter. And what he is trying to do is helping this church to respond to threat. And that's what he tries to focus on. Fear is a natural response to a perceived threat. When we perceive that either ourselves or someone we care about is threatened, Fear is a natural response, not something that we could not do. When the Bible says fear not, it cannot be telling us not to elicit a fearful reaction when we are in a place where we are endangered. If you are in a car, you see somebody veering into your lane, you are going to be afraid. Fear is a natural response to a perceived threat. I've heard somebody talk about the difference between fear and anxiety. Fear is a natural response to a perceived threat, and anxiety is the response to facing the threat alone. Hmm. That's what Paul wants them to do, close ranks. As they are dealing with this, he wants them to come together because the things that they're struggling with are causing them to split. Um, the Philippians are being threatened. They're afraid. They're trying to resist. And their efforts to resist are not very effective. They are trying to stand their ground, but it's difficult to do so. They know Paul can't return, but when they send Epaphroditus, they want for Timothy to come back. Because Timothy, they knew him a little bit better. Epaphroditus was one of them. He was He didn't know the Bible much better than they did. Timothy, though, well, that's a different story. If we could only get Timothy back in the house, then everything would be fine. Then we'd be comfortable. Timothy answered the question, and then they would feel secure. And what ends up happening, their hearts sink when Epaphroditus returned with Paul's response. Paul doesn't send Timothy. And Epaphroditus is one of them. Again, he doesn't know the Bible any more than they do. They're trying to respond to people who really do know the Bible. And they're trying to deal with people. What they need is a spiritual Rambo. That's what they need. Somebody who really knows can come with the Bible with guns blazing, and it can deal with all comers. And, and as Paul talks with them about how to deal with that threat, even though they don't know everything, they, they don't know all the answers, they don't have all the knowledge, what he tells them is how to fight back. 
And let's see what he says. Philippians 1. Only let your life, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. As he tries to urge them to be all that God wants them to be in this present circumstance, he talks about the signs of life that, that will attend a robust response to what they're dealing with, and it would be that they would be able to fight on and fear not. He tells them to fight on. Um, there's individuals who were trained in Jewish schools. They know the Bible, and they are besieging these Gentile Christians in Philippi. There's probably Jews and Gentiles within the church, and they kind of know the Bible but kind of don't. And those who are bringing questions to them, know the Bible very well. 10% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. Again, now it's not being anti-Semitic, but at the time, Christianity was considered to be a sect of Judaism. It was, by the Romans, it was seen as, oh yeah, that's that sect that comes out of Jerusalem, out of Israel. Jesus, yeah, Jesus was that person who instigated this. So a lot of people said, well, no. Christianity is just a sect of Judaism, and it, it grew past that, but initially that's what it seemed to be. And so the Jews then, who either were or were not Christians, they would bring these questions about, well, what about this and what about that to the church? And the church didn't always have not a lot of people that knew what they were talking about. They didn't feel very qualified to deal with the questions like somebody with a handgun fighting off somebody with a machine gun. Somebody with a muzzle loader. That's what they felt like. I don't know much about the Bible. Trying to fend off somebody with an M16. That's why they wanted Paul. Send Timothy. Send somebody who knows what they're talking about. Ever since you left, we've been trying to deal with questions that we have no idea how to deal with. Paul writes from prison again because the Philippians are struggling. They've been generous in their gifts, but they're being thrown into a panic. Um, and they are anything but joyful. Anxieties, I think is dividing not only the congregation, but the leadership and infecting the church. Paul will write in chapter 3 and 4 about Euodia and Syntyche. They're at odds with each other. And he writes to this loyal yoke fellow, which is probably the person in charge of the church, in charge of the area. And he's telling them, well, why don't you kind of connect with Euodia and Syntyche? It seems like the leadership is fractured and the church is fractured. What Paul does is helps them to understand how to come together and what to focus on, what to defend. And what he's going to say, he wants them to defend the gospel. Defend the gospel. Would you agree with me? That when people come around a common vision, it's easier to stand together and it's easier to fight. When a group is being besieged, 
and they are fighting for different things, it's hard for them to stand together. Here's what we know. When the Romans attacked Jerusalem in 70 A.D., they built siege ramps against the city, forged these ramps, and so things could not come into and out of the city. But what we know is that there were three or four factions within the city, and even before the Romans entered the city, finally, in 70 A.D., and decimated it, Numbers of people were already dead. How did they die? They were fighting within themselves. One was thinking, we need to fight for this. And others were thinking, we need to fight for this. And this is the thing we should fight for. And these groups within Jerusalem were splintering. What should we be fighting for? What should the church of Jesus Christ be fighting for? Good question. Um, this is what Paul says. Um, only, in the, again, the first verse of Philippians 1, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, with that, let your manner of life, it's literally live as citizens of. Live as citizens of the gospel of Christ. It's something it calls for tenacity. It's kind of, you want to be patriotic in a spiritual sense? Live as citizens of what? The gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ. That's what he tries to get them to fight for. It um, says, again, we do another way you see it, uh, pledge allegiance to the gospel of Christ. Again, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Um, again, if somebody doesn't know what to fight for, they don't know who to fight against. Paul tells them to with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You know what we're supposed to fight for? The gospel. That's what's supposed to define us. We're supposed to side by side be involved in rolling out the gospel. And when we do so, serving the gospel, doing what we can to allow it to exist. If we focus on that, that's what Paul is trying to get us to come together around. That's what he's trying to get the Philippians to come together around. They're being, they're being hit with all these questions. And what Paul, I think Paul is sensing, we'll talk about the gospel. What Paul is trying to do, don't deal with all those little inane questions. You know, what is this and what is that? And when the priest had, what was this thing over here? And, and what is the seventh bowl? And what is the eighth cloud? And what is the ninth whatever? You know, these things that might be really good for trivia, but they're not really good as a thing to rally around to fight for. What Paul tells them is fight for the gospel. Fight for the gospel. You want to defend something, defend it. Um, friend of mine... Uh, from the University of Pennsylvania, uh, was in town about a month ago, came and uh, was here at the church, and he reminded me of, we talked naturally about what about this guy and what about that guy, and, and this guy actually kept in touch with people, which was a strange phenomenon to somebody like me. Who was, uh, so I was asking about this guy and that guy, and he was telling me about, uh, this guy, and Chuck Angert, he brought up Chuck Angert. I haven't heard that name, and um, Chuck Angert lived a couple blocks away from me. There was a Christian house that I moved into as a junior, 
And uh, when I came to a place of wanting to live for Christ, moved out of the fraternity into the, this house, and Chuck lived a couple blocks away. And uh, there were, at one point, Jehovah's Witnesses coming around. And I didn't know anything. But they came to Chuck's house. And that was a mistake. And they started to ask about the 144,000, and they started talking about, you know, Jesus wasn't born on Christmas, and started to hit all these minor things. And Chuck said, just really, you know, smiling, but sincere. He goes, time out. Jesus came to the earth to allow me to be part of God's forever family, and I'm going to live with him forever. And he is the person that I most want to be with. I want to be with my father. And I'm going to be. If you can add anything to that, go ahead. You know what they did? This group, they closed their Bible version and went off. He knew what he was, he knew what the gospel was. The gospel is not about was Jesus born on Christmas. The gospel really isn't about should you sprinkle or immerse. You know what the gospel is about? What God did historically. Coming to the earth to create a place where we could be part of his forever family. And doing that while we were ungodly sinners and enemies. That's the gospel. Not only what God did. When he did it, what were we doing when he did this? When we were, what the Bible says, when we were, God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were sinners, God sent his son to die for us. What is that? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And what Paul is saying, fight for that. Don't get drawn into these debates. Know what to contend for. Um, It's extremely challenging to keep things simple. It was difficult in Paul's day. Again, the church didn't begin pristine. You know, you think of mountain springs. You know, those little rivulets that begin on the mountains become rivers. And boy, in those mountain springs, you've ever drank of water out of those mountain springs. It's just clear and cold. And, and we have the sense that the early church was like that. You know, everything was pristine and pure. And Every theology was right on track, and it wasn't like that at all. It was a mess. It was very difficult to keep things simple. People had all these different views, and, well, they didn't have the New Testament yet. They didn't have the New Testament until the 4th century. So what they were doing is trying to make a case for, now, how, how about this? How about this? Making a case for God loves you and is sympathetic from the Old Testament. Um, what about, uh, don't tell the Edomites, the Hivites, the, Hivites, the Jebusites, that God, because he doesn't yet understand. That would be pretty challenging, wouldn't it? And when the Jews are plying the church with questions, they don't have, it's hard for them to respond. Um, it was difficult. Look what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 through 4. This is what Paul's concern was. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts may be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Let me read that again. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, 
your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere, sincere means simple and pure, devotion to Christ. This is what God wants, sincere, pure devotion to Christ. And what gets in the way of that? What gets in the way of a sincere, pure devotion to Christ? It's a very interesting thing. You know what the greatest threat is to sincere devotion to Christ? Somebody named Jesus. But a Jesus that doesn't really say, look what it says. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim. There's two words for another. There's another meaning similar, and then there's another meaning dissimilar. Another of the same kind, and another of the different kind. We're going to find the word similar, other, as similar found once. If you preach another Jesus, another of the same kind of Jesus, a similar Jesus, not the exact Jesus, but similar. Yeah, you know Jesus. He died and went up on the cross. Yeah, you, you know, you know, right? It's, but yeah, enough of the right things that it sounded right. So they were talking about a similar Jesus, but got enough wrong that there was a dissimilar spirit. It was a Jesus that made you afraid. It was a Jesus that made you feel the load. You felt weighted down. You know that, Jesus. You've been in churches where he was talked about, haven't you? You've been in those? You come out with feeling going in like this and coming out like this? You know, the Jesus who doesn't take the load, the Jesus who gives it. That's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus takes the load. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's really what it's supposed to be like. really is. And the Jesus that is talked about, even from the Bible, but when you walk out and you feel heavier that you went in, I'm sorry, that's not the real Jesus. That's another Jesus. It's a similar Jesus, but it's a dissimilar spirit. And you know what it ends up being? A dissimilar gospel. That's what he says. If someone comes and preaches another similar Jesus, than the one we proclaimed, or if you read a receive a different, dissimilar spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different, dissimilar gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So what he's saying, these people had a really good yes. We're going to talk about Jesus. Yes, great. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, let's hear him. Uh, and then they were talking about Jesus and saying things about him or presenting him in a way that it wasn't exactly right, and, but nobody said no. Everybody, yeah, it's the Bible, so this has got to be fine. And, and what Paul says, you know what my concern is? You've got a good yes, but a weak no. Because here's what happened in Philippi, and here's what happened wherever things. Well, it talks about Satan in the garden. You're not going to have to look for disturbances. Disturbances are going to come looking for you. Happened in Philippi. Happened in Galatia. Happened in the garden. If the... If the serpent hadn't wandered in, Adam and Eve would have been fine. Why won't people leave you alone? Just let you believe what you want to believe? Why do you have to learn to say no? Because confusion's going to come looking for you. I'd like to say it's not, but it is. It always has. It came into Philippi, it came into Galatia, 
It came into Thessalonica. You know what Paul needed to do? He's trying to get people to contend for the gospel and try to teach them a good yes and a good no. Out of those two, difficult to have a good no, I think. To have a good no, you have to read a Christian book and find them saying something and go, nope, that's not right. That is right. That's not. That's what's, that's, would you agree with me? That's hard. It's difficult. Um, I was afraid, again, you ever see the way lions take down a, like when they're dealing with trying to eat Cape Buffalo? I like those documentaries. Yeah, I like those things. And I don't know why. <laughs> That's not a good thing. Yeah. Okay, Mike, you like to see lions eating things. Uh, <laughs> Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. But, um, but what happened? What they do? They they running. They create agitation and confusion. They attack the herd from different places. So the herd is running hither and yon. And and what the lions are doing this whole time? They're looking for the ones that are weak. And when there's chaos and turbulence and agitation, then they go after the one who is weak and they pick it off. I remember seeing a one of this was kind of good because the buffaloes win. They don't always win, but it was interesting. These lions attack this one young Cape buffalo on the, the shores of this river. I don't know where it was. And it looks like this, this little guy, he's gone. But then the Cape buffalo, they herded together. And they come back, and there was a pride of lions. It was, it was just a bunch of lions, but then they got together, and they formed together. They put their horns down, and then they would, this one lion, this was a pretty good part, ends up getting thrown up in the air, and he's just, <laughs> but, but, okay, I, okay, I understand. So, okay, it's twisted. I understand. I understand. I understand. It's a point. But when they were, came together and they knew what to defend, they were effective. When you come together and you know what's being attacked, we can be effective. What's being attacked? <coughs> Prayer in schools? The commandments in courthouses? What's being attacked and what are we to defend? We are to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we know what to defend, we know what to gather around. We know what to... Would you agree it's defending Christianity and defending the gospel are not always the same thing? That's we're supposed to defend the gospel. Um, and that's what Paul tells them, to strive side by side um, for the faith of the gospel. In the Garden of Eden, he says, the serpent's cunning. You know what, you know what the serpent did? In the, well, I have an assignment for you. A well, few things. If you want to know, because what Paul ends up saying, um, I'm afraid this the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Here's a question. How did the serpent deceive Eve? How did that happen? 
Because what he says, what Paul says, I'm concerned that as the serpent deceived Eve, you would be led astray from pure, simple devotion to Christ. How did the serpent deceive Eve? That would be good to go to school on, wouldn't it? Know how to defend ourselves. What's going to be thrown at us? Question? What did the serpent focus on and why? Remember the story? Did God say you really not die? Do you know where the serpent focused? Commandments. Is that right? What did God command and then was able to use commandments to be able to create confusion? You know what the problem is? God doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good and evil. So he used the commandment to erode trust in God. You know, that's the way it works. Confusion. Am I doing it or not? And God's commitments are firm. Commandments. Those, there's some commandments that are stable, but if we are afraid of violating God's commandments and we fear his judgment, what does that do to our ability to love? Empties it. And that's why it's interesting. So what the serpent did, he focused on commandments to get them to doubt that God was with them. And then when that was in place, then what did they do? Boy, that tree looks good. And now I can't trust God to provide for me or protect me. Now I need wisdom to protect me because God won't, therefore, I need wisdom to protect me. And, and you know what? And boy, I really am kind of hungry in that. Whatever that fruit is kind of looks nice. But you see the way it happens? It wasn't just a straight takedown, was it? It's cunning. I want, you to, I want you to focus away from his commitments because if you focus on his commitments, you'll continue to trust him. And the gospel is all about, well, what is the gospel about? Commandments or Commitments. This is important. What is the gospel about? Is the gospel about keep holy the Lord's day? Or that God sent his son to rescue those who don't keep holy the Lord's day? Which of those is the gospel? The second. Again, you say, well, Mike, are you saying don't keep holy the Lord's day? Keep holy the Lord's day. But, but be clear about what's the gospel and what isn't. Don't fight for keep holy the Lord's day. Fight for the gospel. The different things. You understand what I mean? Tricky, isn't it? Some of you are going, ooh. I don't know. But be clear about what we're fighting against. Um, put an article, a couple articles. We're not going to read them. I put a couple articles in here because I think that some of these thoughts we're going to talk about, you might benefit from reading on your own. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 through 4. There's an article from Vase for Grace on that. Just when you've got time or if you care. I'm just, I threw an article in there just so you could think about that. And I threw another article in there as well. Um, Paul dealt with this same problem about the gospel elsewhere. Look what it says in Galatians 1, 6 to 7. Um, I'm astonished, he writes, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to the same word different, a dissimilar gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort 
the gospel of Christ. There are some who want to trouble you. The image there is what the cape is what lions do to cape buffaloes. Create agitation and confusion. There's some who do that. And um, so the people's thoughts are like a storm at sea. To dis- they want to distort the gospel of Christ. To distort is to turn something into something else. To take something that's real and turn it into something that seems kind of like it, but isn't exactly so. And what they were doing in this church was saying, God loves you because Jesus died for you. Right? That's true. It is true. And he'll love you even more if you do what the Bible says, which at that time the only one they had the Old Testament, which was make sure you get circumcised. Make sure you observe holy days, because the Bible says it. And make sure you observe dietary laws. And so they were saying, God loves you, and he'll love you even more. And that seems like the gospel. What Paul says, that's a different gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus plus. And the gospel of Jesus plus is a dissimilar gospel. The gospel of Jesus is... God does in Jesus all that's necessary for us to be his children. And our job is to believe it. Believe it. That's what we're supposed to do. And if we do that, and if we fight for the pure understanding of what the gospel is, then there's, there's, there's obedience matters that need to be dealt with. But it's connection and correction. It's belief then behavior. Don't stray from the gospel. Don't. And we, we have a tendency to do that. I've talked about the difference between chapter 11 and chapter 7, bankruptcy. Chapter 7, bankruptcy, is when you're not viable as a company. You never will be. So you end up saying, okay, I'm never going to be viable as a company. So you basically are, okay. Chapter 11 is temporary protection from creditors. That it's not that you're not viable. Given a little time, you can pick yourself up by the bootstraps. You can get back going. And so then the question becomes, relative to salvation, is it Chapter 7 or Chapter 11 protection? Does God give you temporary protection so that you get better at doing the commandments so you can be accepted? Or is it Chapter 7? God comes for you knowing that you're never you don't have the power to do that what is salvation is chapter 7 that's what it is sometimes we get into it and we start to think it's chapter you know you know what ends up happening because somebody tells us that's what it is we might hear it on christian radio or read it in a christian book and we have a good yes but not a good no and that's what paul's trying to have get them to understand um most didn't see this as a threat They saw secular humanism as the real problem. According to Paul, what he was afraid of, he wasn't as afraid of secular humanism as he was sacred legalism. That's difficult. Watch out what you listen to on sacred channels. That is much more dangerous than what you hear on secular channels. You understand what I'm saying? Because little things can get added. And so he's trying to pause Paul's to tell them what to, what to fight about. Um, Paul understood that the gospel of Jesus plus isn't the gospel. 
Um, he didn't operate by the fact that whatever gets people to come into a church is okay. See, Paul served the gospel. The gospel didn't serve him. So Paul didn't change the gospel to keep people in the seats or whatever. What he did, he served the gospel. What he understood, if I just allow the gospel to be good news, it will do the work. And no place is perfect. Yeah, we're not saying, oh, but we did from the beginning. Remember dealing with the leadership. He said, what if we allow the good news to be the good news? And do our best to defend that. And we have since the beginning. Have we been perfect? No. Have we rallied in terms of leadership around that? Absolutely. And there were times when things were, then we talk about it. We, mm, I think that's what the church is supposed to do. Um, Paul goes on, talks about, what is, what is this gospel anyways? Um, so it says in Galatians 2, 19 through 21, I died to the law, Paul writes, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself up for me. Why did Jesus die for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He loves you. What did Jesus accomplish by his death? I love this. I really would like to have discussions. It really would be great. Can't have discussions, so be quiet. <laughs> no, I just. Yeah. There we You know what's nice? I know that guy means it. I know that's what he hangs on to. That's what he defends. That's what he tries to rally around. Um, it can be, you know, I hear somebody say, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Martin Luther said, I understand what he was trying to say. Maybe he said this, maybe he didn't. Somebody said, he said, Martin Luther died, Christ lives here now. I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. Mike no longer lives. Uh, is that confusing to you? You no longer live? If you no longer live in Christ, what are you, an exoskeleton? Is, are you like a hermit crab? Really, and I'm, I'm, being kind of, I'm not being a wise guy, it's just, what does that mean? Mike died and Christ lives here now? Do you just only have Christian thoughts? What, does Jesus move in and move out? Really? What does it mean that Jesus lives in you? That's the gospel. Look what it says in the context. The fact that you have been crucified with Christ has a very practical result. Now see if you can find it. Okay, why is it important that you have been crucified with Christ? I'm going to read this text again, and I want you to try to find it, okay? 
And when you find it, you'll understand, oh, that's what the gospel is. That's why it's good news. Okay, ready? Ready? I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Why did Jesus die for you? So that you would no longer be under the jurisdiction of old covenant law. So that God would not any longer judge you by whether you're keeping the commandments or not. Is that true? What would happen if you believed that? More. That's tricky, isn't it? The reason why we've been crucified with Christ, we died with Christ, that Jesus rose to a level above the jurisdiction of law, and if you are in Christ, guess where you are too? In a place where you have diplomatic immunity. God's not writing out tickets for you anymore. He's not putting them on your windshield in terms of, uh, you say, Mike, if I believe that, that's a good question, isn't it? If you believe that, it's hard to believe. But if we believe it more, you know what happens? The fear of judgment goes down. If the fear of judgment goes down, tell me what's going to go up. Love will go up. That's the way it works. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. It is very important for us when we embrace the gospel to understand the reason the gospel exists is that we would no longer fear God's judgment. Why? Because that will lead to increasing love. That's, that's what the gospel is. Do you hear that all the time? Do you hear that all the time in Christian places? I think it, it is very confusing. Seems very confusing. Not defending the gospel. Anyway. In order to stand firm, we need a good yes and a good no. We have to avoid getting stuck with majoring on minors, minoring on majors. What's the major? The gospel. The gospel's the major. That's what we defend. Um, we find ourselves fighting a fight that, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You know what this passage seems to be saying? Only go into business with Christians. Don't have anything to do with unbelievers. You know, only drink milk from a Christian cow. I'm poking fun a little bit, but you know what? That's really not what this text is saying. What's happening in the context is individuals are saying that if you're a Christian... You need to stay out of the marketplace. And what, there be, what these 
Christians in Corinth are being told? Because what fellowship has light with darkness? Travis? Watching secular programming? (laughs) And I know that, I hate to say this, that Anne doesn't just listen to Christian radio. Again, am I saying I'm not blowing up listening to Christian radio, but what was happening in Corinth is people were really being pushed on that. And you know what they were saying? That if you're spiritual, you separate yourself from the world. Separate yourself from the world. And you know what Paul is telling them? And there's an article in here, the second article. Paul is saying, if you believe the gospel, you know what you're going to do? You're going to separate from the separatists. Somebody tells you to stay away from them all, you're going to go, no. No, because staying away from the mall is not the gospel. Jesus died for me while I was a sinner. That's the gospel. And I don't have to stay away from all. You understand what I'm saying, right? But have you, but do some of you know the pull of that thing? If you really were a Christian, you wouldn't go, you wouldn't, and there's some things you have to watch out for, but we have a tendency to be really careful about watching out for how we behave and not being very careful with watching out for how we believe. And that's what the gospel has us do. You want to fight for something? Can we fight for that together? Can we, can we rally around and fight for the gospel? That's what Paul is telling the Philippians to do. And if we do so, the gospel is powerful. Oh, I'll tell you what. Rolling out the gospel is like detonating a bomb. And, the, and, the, and what it ends up blowing up? Some religious thinking. The gospel is, again, the gospel is not keep holy the Lord's Day. That's fine. Keep holy the Lord's Day and do things. Rest. But the gospel is that Jesus came to rescue those who don't keep holy the Lord's Day. That seems to be what it is. Uh, fear not what it says. So fight on. Understand what you're fighting for and against. Fear not. Um, again, let's read the passage. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened. This is in any way, in anything by your opponents. Not being frightened in anything by your opponents is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. You know what was happening to the Philippians? They were biting the nails because they felt like Paul's in prison and I can't answer all these questions and, and I don't know. I'm not doing a really good job because I'm not defending the church and I'm not defending the Bible and I'm not defending Jesus. And, and there everybody was pretty nervous until you know what Paul told them to do? Defend the gospel. It's not that confusing. You don't need to have all the answers to what the fifth bowl and the seventh what is. You need to know why Jesus died. And what it gives, be simple. Keep it simple. That's what he's doing. And when you know that, then what Paul's saying, don't be alarmed by your opponents. They're going to start to get you angry. They're going to start to make you feel uncomfortable that you don't have all kinds of biblical knowledge. Now, get biblical knowledge? Absolutely. Absolutely. The more I understand about the Bible, the more I understand what the gospel is. And the more I can appreciate his love. And that's what we'll continue to talk about here. We'll just keep coming back and coming back to it. Um, to what we need to defend. Um, says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. 
engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and that you hear I still have. He's trying to get them to relax. You don't need to have all the answers. What Paul is trying to tell them, listen, I was put in prison and being in prison has not hurt the gospel at all. In fact, I have a captive audience. They thought that they were imprisoning me. They have to listen to me. And you know what I tell them? The gospel. So did Paul's suffering get in the way of the gospel? If you fight for the gospel, nothing can get in the way of it. That's what he says. We refused to practice cunning, last verse, or to tamper with God's word by the open statement of the truth. We would commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If you fight for the gospel, here's the deal. You don't have to be shiny. In fact, a flawless person is not a good representative of the gospel. The gospel is not believe and have a perfect life like you have. Not the gospel. You know what the gospel In fact, the gospel doesn't require you to be a bright, shiny fixture. In fact, what Paul says, God puts this message in jars of clay. People treat it in ordinary way. When you understand what to fight for, being imperfect like you and me is an advantage. If you're living to defend Christianity then you need to be a sparkling example of virtue. You need to have a great family, drive great cars, have great kids, so everybody could look at you and say, oh, that's what it's like to be a Christian, to be somebody that God, really, somebody that God blesses. If I'm obedient like them, I'll have that kind of life too. Sometimes in places, that's what Christians believe. I need to do everything well so that people will look at me and want to be a believer in Jesus like I am. Again, that's a way to defend Christianity, but you can defend Christianity kind of, and defending the gospel is different. You don't have to be any shinier than you are to defend the gospel because the gospel is that God comes for unshiny people. And that's why, why God sent his son and when he sent him worship team, come on up. A prosperous, happy person, a prosperous, happy, well-adjusted person is not the best representative for the gospel or the best one to defend it. Father, we just thank you for the gospel, and you, we thank you for the commission you've given us as non-shiny folks to love and appreciate and reflect you. That is the weapon that's mighty through God. That is the weapon that changes the way we believe. That is the weapon of the new covenant. And we're thankful. Send us out this week armed with that. We don't have to be shiny to defend the gospel. You have designed us the way we need to be. And that includes tension and weakness. In Jesus' name, amen.